that came to Micah, the Morristite, in days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which you saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear all your people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from the holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what high places of Judah are they not? Jerusalem. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity once again to be in your house and, Lord, to spend time as believers around your word and uh, sing and praise to your name. Lord, we pray that this morning as we come to your word that, Lord, you would empower me now through your Holy Spirit, that, Lord, you would give me wisdom and guidance from on high. Lord, I, mean, I say this morning would be your words and your thoughts and that, Lord, you would give us understanding of this passage and that, Lord, you would teach us through your word. And may we leave having received the blessing this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So obviously we finished our study of Jonah, and so we're moving into the book of Micah this morning. And in verse 1, we get a brief introduction as to who this man is, you know, when he lived, and who he is ministering unto. Verse 1 begins by saying the word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morristites. So we're told that Micah is from a small town called Morasheth, okay, uh, and this town is located about 25 miles southwest or 40 kilometers southwest of Jerusalem, and it's basically down near the border with the Philistines, okay, so it's a border town, this little place, this little town where he comes from, and so this means that Micah, like, much like Amos, is a country boy, that's, that's who he is, he's not a city boy, he didn't grow up in the city, he's from the country, much like Amos, we're not told his profession, but we can know that he was from the country and more than likely he had something to do with agriculture and that, like Amos. I told you also in verse 1 that um, he prophesied during the reigns of three kings. It says, uh, the word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morristite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. We're given the name of three kings of Judah here. Jotham, who lived from 750 to 735 B.C., Ahaz from 735 to 715 BC, and then Hezekiah 715 to 686. And so we get this time period, it's between 750 BC and 686. This is when he lived, this is when he ministered in this time period. You know, this is important because from this, you and I gather the inf information that he is a contemporary with Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah is ministering at the exact same time that Micah is. Just go over to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, in verse 1, it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. You've got four kings listed there, but the last three are the same as Micah. And so Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries. They were around at the same period of time, ministering in the same place. They're both ministering in, in Judah, in the southern kingdom. We also know that in the northern kingdom at this time, you have Amos and Hosea ministering. Just turn quickly to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1 verse 1. It says the word of the Lord 
they came unto Hosea, the son of Biri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And so you've got Hosea ministering as well, but he's ministering to the north. And Amos is around this time as well. And so we gather that these four prophets are all around the same period of time. They all minister together. Um, Isaiah and, and Micah to the south and Amos and Hosea to the north. We also learn from the book of Jeremiah that it was under Micah's ministry that the Reformation took place under King Hezekiah. Just turn to Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah 26, verse 18. Micah, the Morristite, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be ploughed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah, put him at all to death? Did he not fear the Lord, and besought the Lord, and the Lord repented? repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them thus might we procure great evil against our souls and so here you have it mentions micah ministering in the days of hezekiah and it was under his ministry that hezekiah repented hezekiah turned to the lord and there was this reformation that took place under king hezekiah and so micah plays a pivotal role in that piece of history he's there at that event and he has a role to play and so we've seen who he is and we've seen where, you know, the time frame that he ministers. And now we're told in verse 1 also who he ministers to. It says, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And so he ministers to both. He, he dwells in the south, but his message is to both, the south and to the north, to Samaria and to Jerusalem. You see, Micah in his prophecy sees the judgment that's coming upon both. He sees the judgment coming to the northern kingdom in the form of the Assyrians in 722 BC and he sees the Babylonians coming to the south in 606 to 598 BC he sees these events on the horizon this is what God reveals this is what he's prophesying about God reveals these events to him and as as he looks at these events Micah now pleads with the people to come back to the Lord much like a lot of the prophets that we've looked at he pleads with the people to repent and pray the Lord God once again and over the course of this book, Micah receives three messages from the Lord. Three messages that he delivers to the people in the hope that they would abandon their idolatry and return back to the Lord God Almighty. Basically, chapters 1 and 2 is the first message, and there we have a warning, okay, judgment is coming. In chapters 3 to 5, we have a promise, a delivery is coming. And then in chapters 6 and 7, we have a challenge, trust the Lord. now. It's basically the division of this book. This morning, we're only going to begin to look at his first message, judgment is coming. And this message begins in verses 1 to 5 here with a declaration of God's wrath. Declaration of God's wrath. And notice firstly, if you would, this morning we see the court is convened. God's court is convened. Look in verse 2. It says, Hear all your people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. In verse 2 here, Micah begins his message to the people in earnest. His message to both the north and the south in earnest as he 
begins to tell them that God's court is convened. He's telling them that God has called his courtroom to order. God is about to deliver witness against his people. And Micah here summons all the people to listen as God speaks. He says in verse 2, Hear all you people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is. He summons all people of the north and the south, all Israel. So he's talking to here. He summons them all to listen, to pay attention. No one is exempt here from what God is about to say. No one is exempt from what God is about to declare. God's courtroom is convened and Israel as a whole must listen as God the judge sits in judgment over them. We read on in verse 2, it says, Let the Lord God be witness against you. Let the Lord God be witness against you. Basically here, Micah is stressing who it is that's bearing witness. You see, it's not Micah that's bearing witness against them. It's not Micah who's accusing them. It's not one of the other prophets, Isaiah or Hosea or Amos. It's not the other prophets. It's God, the Lord God, sitting in judgment over them. It's the Lord God who is bearing witness against them. You see, this title, the Lord God, emphasizes to the people God's sovereignty. It's the Lord God, Adonai, King, Ruler. It's the Lord God, the sovereign ruler, sits in judgment over them. The point is, he has every right to sit in judgment. He has every right to bear witness against them. He has all the evidence before him. He knows everything they've done. Nothing's hidden from God. And so as the Lord God, the the omnipotent, sovereign God, bears witness against them, they need to listen. That's what Micah's point is here. They need to listen. They need to pay attention because it's God, their king, who's speaking. It's God, their king, who's bearing witness against them. He goes on to state, he says, Let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. The word translated temple here can also mean palace. So it will be the Lord from his holy palace. Essentially, it's speaking about the Lord's dwelling place. This is where the Lord sits in judgment over his people. This is where he rules and reigns as king. Now, the language can be used to refer to the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It doesn't seem to be referring to that here. It seems instead to be referring to his heavenly palace, his dwelling place. And when we look at verse 3, I think that will become clear. Because in verse 3, it talks about him descending to earth in judgment. He leaves his palace and descends. And so it's talking about his holy palace, his holy temple, his dwelling place. This is where the Lord sits in judgment over his people. And notice here that Micah stresses that it's his holy temple. It's his holy dwelling place. You see, Micah adds here God's sovereignty, his holiness. The Lord God, the sovereign God, is holy, his holiness as well. See, it's because God is holy that God must deal with sin. God's holiness demands it. It's God's holiness that demands that he must act, that he must, in his righteousness, judge mankind for the sin, that he must judge Israel for their sin. It's his holiness. So essentially here in verse 2, Micah is calling upon the people to listen as their sovereign, holy God sit judgment over them as he bears witness against them. You see, God has every right because they are accountable to him. That's the point here in verse 2. Israel is accountable to him. And Micah says, listen up. Your sovereign, holy God is bearing witness against you. And you need to pay attention. 
And as I thought about that, you know, God is still sovereign. God is still holy. He hasn't changed. That God is still sovereign. He is still holy. And He's not just the sovereign, holy God of Israel. He is the sovereign, holy God of all mankind, the whole earth. In chapter 4 of Micah, verse 13, Micah says that very thing. Chapter 4, verse 13 says, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass. And thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Last little phrase there, the Lord of the whole earth. You see, that's who God is. God is sovereign. He is the ruler. He is the king of the whole earth, not just Israel. It's not just Israel that is accountable to God for their actions. It's all mankind. It's us as believers. He's our sovereign God. He's our sovereign king. He is our holy God. Now, Israel might be the ones in focus here in chapter 1, and they are. It's Israel as a whole, both the north and the south. They're in focus here. They're the ones called to stand before God. They're the ones that God is bearing witness against here in chapter 1. You know, all mankind is accountable to God and there is a day coming when the sovereign God is in judgment over all mankind. There's a day coming when God's courtroom will be convened and all mankind will be called to listen up as God passes judgment upon all mankind. Of course, ultimately, that punishment will be the eternal punishment of the lake of fire, won't it? And we know that from Revelation 20. We've read that passage before, but we know well the day is coming. All will stand before God. Small, the, the dead, small and great, will stand before the Lord, and those that are not found written in the book of life will be cast in the lake of fire. And that day is coming. That day is fast approaching where mankind will stand before God because they are accountable to Him. He is the sovereign, holy God. So it's not just the unsaved that are accountable to God. You and I are accountable to Him as well. He's our sovereign, holy God. And you and I need to remember that in our own lives and our own actions that we are accountable to Him. He sees what we do. You know, one's going to stand before him and give an account of what we've done with our lives, the works that we've done in our bodies, the things that we've done for his glory. You see, God sees those things and we are accountable to him. We are accountable to him. He is our sovereign, holy God. And his court here in verse 2 is convened for Israel. We see, secondly, now that the judge is coming. Micah says the judge is coming. Look in verse 3. It says, For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft, as well for the fire and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. Now here we now see that the judge is coming. The judge is coming. Micah gives to you and I here a majestic, powerful image of the Lord descending in judgment to earth. That's the image we have here. In verse 2, he's in heaven. He's on his throne. He's bearing witness against his people. Now in verse 3 and 4, he is moved. He's risen up off his throne and God is now moving against his people with judgments. The Lord is descending from heaven to earth and he's bringing judgment with him. You see, the sovereign, holy God now rises from his throne and he strides forth upon earth's heights. Look there in verse 3. It says, For behold... The Lord cometh forth out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. 
You get this image of the Lord just striding forth upon the high places of earth as he comes to judge his people. You see, Israel is guilty. They're guilty as charged. God has borne witness against them. They are condemned. And God now is coming to judge his people, to deal with them, to chastise them for their sin, for their wickedness. You know, in the past, God had marched forth from heaven in defense of his people, had he not? Time and time again, God had left his throne to march with his people against the enemy, to protect his people, to deliver his people. Time and time again, they had witnessed as the power of God saved them from the enemy. Now, they'd seen God's wrath poured out on their enemies, but now God's wrath was directed at them. Now God's wrath is directed at his own people because of their sin. Now, the words come forth here in verse 3 where it says, For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place. These words cometh forth. They speak of marching forth in battle. That's the point here. Behold, the Lord marches forth in battle. That's what he's doing here. He's striding forth with a purpose. The Lord is marching forth to battle against his people. Now, it goes on in verse 4 here to describe the Lord's coming using imagery here of an earthquake and volcano activity. It says in verse 4, And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. It basically here, Micah uses imagery to describe the terror which attends the coming of the Lord in judgment. That's what he's trying to convey here. He's trying to convey how terrible it is when God leaves his throne and marches forth upon the earth. You see, the point is that there is no place for man to hide. There's no place for Israel, the north or the south, neither kingdom. There's no place for them to hide now as God marches forth. No place is safe from him. You know, human walls, human fortifications crumble and fall before the power of the Lord. Mountains shake and crumble under the power of God. Nowhere is safe when the Lord comes in judgment. That's his point here. There's nowhere safe for Israel now. God is moved. God is coming. You know, in a sense, mankind feels safe as long as God is long-suffering, don't they? As long as God is long-suffering and God stays in heaven upon his throne, mankind feels safe. You know, when he marches forth in judgment, they are gripped by the reality that they must meet the holy God in person. And that's what Israel is facing here. This is the reality that Israel must now face. They have sinned against God. They've borne, and he has borne witness against them. He has declared their sin. They are guilty, and now God is coming to judge. Long suffering's gone. God's patience has run out. The judgment is coming. Now, this judgment, of course, as would take place or take the form of the Assyrians for the northern kingdom. And, of course, the Babylonians for the southern kingdom. And that's the judgment he's seeing here. As Micah looks, this is what he's looking at. This is what he's seeing in this prophecy. But, you know, as Micah looks at the scene before him, he doesn't see the armies of man. What Micah sees is the God behind those armies. And he stresses that. That's the imagery he's given us here. He wants the people to understand that these armies that are going to come, this is not man doing this. This is God. This is God marching against Israel. God himself coming in judgment against them. You know, Israel had become comfortable in their sin. 
That's the reality. Israel, both the north and the south, had become comfortable in what they were doing. They thought God was turning a blind eye, but it was okay. But God's long-suffering had run out and God was coming in judgment. You know, as we look around the world today, mankind is indeed comfortable in their sin. Comfortable in their wickedness. And you know, God for now is long-suffering. He's long-suffering. You know, you and I long for the day he'll come again, but each day that he waits is another day that he's given another soul to be saved. The Lord is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. You know, there is a day fast approaching when God will leave his throne and God will march against this earth. And God will come in judgment against the wicked of this world. You know, we know it as the Battle of Armageddon. We read about it in Revelation and we know that that day is coming. That day when mankind will face the Lord and the Lord will deal with them for their sin. God will face them in battle. He will come in all of his power, all of his majesty and execute judgment on this earth. You know, it's easy for you and I to make the correlation with the unsaved and the fact that they're complacent in their sin and the fact that God's long-suffering will run out. But you know, we mustn't overlook the fact here that God is speaking to his people. God is talking to Israel here, north and the south. And God is coming to judge his people to chasten them for their sin. They had come, become complacent in their sin. God is coming to deal with them. You know, you and I must likewise as God's people not become complacent. We need to be careful that we don't become complacent, don't become comfortable in our sin like Israel. You know, allowing our morals to slip, our standards to slip, allowing these things to go by the by, and they have slipped. The church has moved a long way from where it used to be. And you know, we look at those things at times and we think it doesn't matter, but it does to God. It matters to the Lord drastically. Somehow we are under this disillusion that it's okay. We're comfortable. We're like Israel. We're comfortable in it. We're content and we think it doesn't matter. We're complacent. But you know, believers, the reality is it does matter to God. It does matter. And God will move to chasten his people. He will move to chasten us for our sin. You know, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, talks about the fact that judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Let's go there, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, verse 17, it says, For the time is come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not? End of the, sorry, end be of them that obey not the gospel of God. Starts out by saying, for the time I come, the judgment must begin where? At the house of God. You know, we are God's people. We are his representatives here on earth. You know, Israel failed in that responsibility. They were his representatives. They were supposed to be a testimony to the nations around them. But they failed miserably in that responsibility. And what did God do? God chastened them for their sin. God dealt with them. The same is true for you and I. We are to be God's example here on earth, God's representative. And you know, we must not think that somehow it doesn't matter what we do because it does matter to God. God will chase and God will deal with our sin. We've looked at it before. In other passages, in Peter, talks about things like this, the fact that God will deal with sin. Beloved, we cannot become complacent in sin, content to let these things go. You know, as Jude talks about, we need to contend for the faith. We need to stand firm upon things. We need to hold fast to these things, not just let them go. Just think it doesn't matter. It does matter. And God will deal with it. God will chasten us if we continue in it, if we go down that road. 
Now, we must not make the same mistake as Israel. You know, we look at these Old Testament books, you know, the minor prophets, and they're all about the same thing, are they not? Israel is sin and judgment coming and God dealt with them. They're there because they're a warning to us. They're a warning for us, not just the unsaved. They're a warning for us as believers that we can't be complacent. That God dealt with Israel once before their sin and God will deal with us as well. Yes, we're not going to lose our place in heaven. That won't happen. That won't happen. But God can still deal with us. God can still chasten us. Take us home before our time to glory because we're not of no use to him. It does matter to the Lord. Let's not make the same mistake as Israel. Lastly here we see now the reason that the judge comes. The reason the judge comes. Look in verse 5. It says, For the transgression of Jacob is all this. And for the sins of the house of Israel, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? You know, lastly now in verse 5, we see <clears throat> that Micah tells us clearly why it is that the Lord has been moved. He tells us exactly why it is that God has been moved from his throne to come in judgment against the north and the south. And he begins verse 5 by telling us it's for the transgression of Jacob is all this and for the sins of the house of Israel. There's two parts to this verse. Firstly, here we're told that Jacob has transgressed. Jacob has transgressed. Jacob here is referring to the northern kingdom. And that's beca that becomes clear from the second half of the verse, which we'll see in a minute. But it's talking about the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is said to have transgressed, or for the transgression. This word transgression here literally means rebellion. It's rebellion. It speaks about a willful disobedience of God's covenant, a willful disregard for God's law, and what God had said they should do. You see, it's because of their rebellion that God was now going to come, that God was going to move against them in his wrath. You know, the people might have responded to Micah here and said, you know, how have we rebelled? Where's the evidence of our rebellion? And that's why he adds the second part of verse 5 where he says, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? He says, what is the transgression of Jacob? Where's the evidence of the northern kingdom's Rebellion, their sin? Well, it's Samaria. He points the finger at the capital city, Samaria. You see, Samaria was the center of the northern kingdom's idolatry. It was the center of the problem. Now, we've seen this before, but the northern kingdom, when they divided from the south under Jeroboam, you know, Jeroboam set up a rival religious system. And he did this, why? To stop them from traveling south. He didn't want the people to go down to Jerusalem to worship. Let's just turn over to 1 Kings chapter 12 and read about this event. 1 Kings chapter 12. <clears throat> In verse 28 it says, Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other put in Dan. And this became a sin, for the people went to worship before one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing under the calves, 
that he had made and placed in Bethel, the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month that he had devised of his own hearts, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Now here we see clearly him setting up this false religion, this counterfeit religion. You know, he creates a false priesthood. He sets up idols and he says, "Thee be your gods that brought you out of Egypt. He even institutes feasts as well to counteract the feasts of, is- of, of the southern kingdom, the true feasts of God. So he sets up counterfeit feasts as well. You know, Jeroboam goes to great lengths here to set up this counterfeit religion, this counterfeit religion in the northern kingdom. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, when we read on in Kings, as we read the book of Kings and Second Kings, you know, we find that every single king of the northern kingdom followed who? They followed in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. It says that numerous times throughout the word of God because he led them in their sin and they followed him. And you see, the point is that the kings followed his example and they continued to lead the people in idol worship. And where were the kings? They were in Samaria. They were upon the throne. They were the cause of the problem. That's what Mike is saying here. He's pointing the, thing at, the finger at Samaria and he's saying, look at Samaria, there's the evidence of your transgression. There's the evidence of your rebellion. The capital city epitomized the northern kingdom's problem. You know, likewise, we're told here that the southern kingdom had sinned. Look back in verse 5, it says, For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. The house of Israel here is referring to the southern kingdom. And again, this is made clear by the end of the verse where we read this. It says, And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? And so now we've got the other part, okay? So we're talking about the southern kingdom now. You see, like the northern kingdom, the south had sin. They were guilty of the same sin. They were guilty of idolatry as well. They were guilty of rebellion. They were guilty of rejecting the truth. And once again, where does Micah point the finger for the evidence? He says, Jerusalem. Look at Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem, like Samaria in the north, was guilty of leading the people in the worship of false gods. The kings were guilty of leading the people astray. Now, Jerusalem should have been the center of worship, true worship of God. It should have been the center of holiness, you know, because there was God's temple. But instead, it were of idolatry, just like Samaria in the north. Just go over to Second Chronicles. I think this outlines clearly where Micah is coming from. Second Chronicles, <clears throat> chapter twenty-eight. Second Chronicles, chapter twenty-eight, verse twenty-two. <clears throat> it says, and in the time of his distress, did he trespass yet more against the Lord? This is that King Ahaz. Now, Ahaz, of course, is one of the kings that Micah is ministering under. Okay? Verse 23, it says, For he sacrificed under the gods of Damascus, which smote him. And he said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, therefore I will sacrifice, unto the, sacrifice to them, that they may help me. For they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God, and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God, and shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and he made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every several city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense under other gods. 
and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. This is the time in which Micah lives. This is what the kings in Jerusalem had done, in particular Ahaz. Ahaz has boarded up the temple. He's taken the vessels. He's destroyed the vessels of the temple. And then he's gone and set up idols all through Jerusalem. It's a center of idolatry. And not only that, it says in verse 25 that he goes and sets up high places all around Judah. See, as Micah says in his verse, and what are the high places of Judah or who causes the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Jerusalem was the problem. Once again, he points the finger at the capital city. So the point is, as Micah looked at the north, Samaria epitomized their sin, their rebellion. As he looked at the south, Jerusalem epitomized their wickedness. And it was because of this blatant rejection of God, this blatant idolatry, that God was now going to come in judgment against his people. So the point is, they couldn't argue with God, could they? Once all this evidence was laid bare and God bore witness against them, and Micah points out Samaria, Jerusalem, they couldn't argue with God. They were guilty as charged and they only had to look at the capital cities to see the evidence. You see, this was the heart of Israel and Judah's problem, idolatry. We've seen that time and time again, haven't we? This was their problem. At the raw, their problem was a rejection of the truth and a worship of false gods. You know, Micah will go on in chapter 2 to list some of the others that they've committed. But here, in his first accusation in chapter 1, he strikes at the heart of the problem. Idolatry. A rejection of God in favor of idols. Now, as I thought about that, you know, our God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. He demands that you and I worship Him and worship Him alone. In Exodus 34, verse 14, <clears throat> it says this, For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, jealous God that's our god that's the sovereign holy god that we talked about in verse 2 he is a jealous god and you know he has every right to be jealous he has every right to demand that you and i worship him and him alone he is the lord god he is the sovereign holy god now we must be careful that we're not guilty of the same sin as israel and we're not guilty of the same sin. You know, they forgot the Lord and they served false gods. And we can be guilty of the same sin. Sadly, often we are guilty of the same sin. Now, in Micah chapter 5, verse 13. Just turn over there. There's an interesting phrase here, which I think is really important here. In verse 13, it says, Thy graven images also will I cut off, and my standing images out of the midst of thee, and thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands what was israel's problem they were worshiping the work of their own hands that was the reality you know we may not go and carve ourselves an idol but you and i can certainly be guilty of worshiping the work of our own hands certainly be guilty of it guilty of living for the things of this life giving for the, living for things that you and i can obtain things that we can do it's the work of our hands you see, the reality is that whatever you and I devote our attention to, the thing that dominates our time, the thing that captures the most of our attention, that's an idol if it's not God. That's what we worship. Whatever dominates our attention, whatever comes first in our life, that is what we worship. And so if it's not God, well, it's an idol. 
It's the work of our hands. It's exactly the same as Israel. It's the same sin. Not we bowing down to a Buddha in the cupboard, but it's the same sin. It's no different because we haven't got God on the throne. Now, as believers, the only one you and I should worship, the one who gets our devotion, gets our time, gets our energy, ought to be the Lord. You see, he needs to be the priority in our life. And sadly, at times, we, we put other things before him, don't we? We're all guilty of it. Sadly, we put other things before the Lord, and when we do that, we are committing the sin of idolatry. God needs to be the priority. Worshiping him needs to be the priority. Coming to church needs to be the priority. Being in prayer needs to be a priority. Being in our ministries needs to be a priority. Why? Because all those things are how we worship the Lord. And so if those things aren't a priority, well, sorry, we've got it wrong. Idolatry. Something else is more important to you and I. Something else is on the heart, on the throne of our hearts other than the Lord. Those things need to come before all else. Our devotions need to come before all else. Prayer needs to come before all else. Now, I think at times we sort of sugarcoat it and we sort of put roses all over it and we say, oh, but this is a priority. We have to be there for this. No, sorry, if it comes before the Lord, it's idols. It's wrong. God's word's clear. God needs to be first. God needs to be on the throne. And if he's not, we are doing the same as Israel. We are no different than him, than Israel here, the northern and the south, southern kingdom. You know, I wonder today, is the Lord sitting upon the throne of our hearts? Is he our sovereign God? Is he in control? Is he our sole devotion? Does he have first place? Is he our priority? You know, or are we guilty like Israel of worshipping the works of our own hands? Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, these books, these minor prophets, so clearly demonstrate the sin of Israel, Lord, and the result that came from it. And Lord, at times we get sick of hearing, Lord, that Israel sinned, judgment came, and they were condemned, and you dealt with them. Lord, there's a reason why you record it over and over and over again in the Word, so that, you, so that us as believers today will pay attention. Lord, I pray you help each of us to make you the priority. Lord, put you upon the throne of our hearts and let you have control, let you have first place. May, Lord, you just work in our hearts this morning. May we think upon these things as we leave this place in Jesus' name.